It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Boris Johnson tore up conservative fiscal orthodoxy this week when he announced a whopping tax rise to fix the UK's creaking social care system after the pandemic. But having spent £407 billion or more to support lives and livelihoods throughout the pandemic, from furlough to vaccines, it would be wrong for me to say that we can pay for this recovery without taking the difficult but responsible decisions about how we finance it. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be analysing the Prime Minister's gamble on social care reform, what the plan involves, and whether the Conservative Party and its voters will swallow such big tax rises. Our political editor George Parker and economics editor Chris Giles will dissect the details. And later, we'll be looking at how the government hopes to try and avoid another coronavirus lockdown this winter through vaccine passports and booster jabs. But with cases already running high, are hospitals going to be overwhelmed? Health editor Sarah Neville and science reporter Oliver Barnes will discuss. Well, with plenty to dive into, let's get into the main topic of the week. Outside Downing Street, on the morning after he was re-elected Prime Minister, Boris Johnson pledged to solve the UK's creaking social care system once and for all. He claimed to have an oven-ready plan to ensure the old and vulnerable would not be left having to sell off all their worldly goods in order to pay for their care. That plan was finally revealed this week, including an £80,000 cap on costs and more generous state support for those on lower income. But it comes at a price. Chancellor Rishi Sunak explained that increasing the money for social care would mean a £10 billion a year tax rise. For more than 70 years... It has been an article of faith in this country that our National Health Service should be free at the point of use, funded by general taxation. If we are serious about defending this principle in a post-COVID world, we have to be honest with ourselves about the cost that brings and be prepared to take the difficult and responsible decisions to meet them. George, let's begin with the details of this plan. And we should really begin with what Andrew Dilnot proposed in 2010 when this issue about social care and caring for the ageing population came into the public consciousness. And it's been kicked around ever since then with governments really shying away from solving this. Finally, Boris Johnson is tackling it head on. What do you make of the plan? Well, as you say, it's something that's been dogging successive governments for well over a decade. We had uh, the last Labour government with its so-called death tax, which had to be abandoned. We had Theresa May, of course, and her famous dementia tax uh, blowing up election campaign in 2017. And now we've come on to this one, which, as you say, is an iteration, really, of the plan first developed by Andrew Dilnot. So our listeners will know very well what's been proposed. There's an £86,000 cap on lifetime costs of adult social care. 
and a more generous means-tested help for people as they go into the system. Uh, that's at the heart of it. Now, the problem is that this has been dressed up as both a health and social care levy, and it's got, there's going to be £36 billion raised over the next three years, of which only £5.4 billion is being earmarked for social care. Now, the theory is that over time, some of the money that's going to the NHS allegedly to pay for catch-up care and to clear the backlog of waiting lists in England hospitals, that money will eventually transfer across to the social care system. But lots of people, including a number of people in the Treasury, are very sceptical about whether that will happen. So there's a danger, I think, that in spite of the fact there's a lot of money, there's a big tax rise coming down the track. The danger for the Conservative Party and the Conservative government is that not enough money actually goes into the social care system at the end of the day to fix this chronic problem. George, can you just explain in a little bit of detail how this reform package is going to work? Because the balance Boris Johnson was trying to strike is to the state is putting in extra money, but individuals will have to contribute more without necessarily losing all their assets. Well, in the Conservative manifesto, they were saying that they wanted to try to stop people having to sell their homes to pay for catastrophic social care costs. So one of the elements of the Boris Johnson plan is that the government will put a cap of £86,000 on the amount that anyone can spend on their adult social care during their lifetime, at which point the government will step in and pick up the rest of the costs. Now, you can have an argument about whether that um, will protect, protect people from having to sell their houses. Of course, probably not is the answer, answer to that. That's one element of it. The other element of it is the, the floor. If your assets are worth less than £20,000, then the state will step in and pay for all of your social care. And between £20,000 and £100,000, the state will come in and pay some of your social care costs. The idea of that is to make things a bit fairer. And I was speaking to Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation who put it quite simply, which is that the the cap, the £86,000 cap, is intended to stop you having to sell your house. The floor of £20,000 is intended to stop you losing everything. Well, Chris Charles, when you look at these, the, the big tax rise to pay for us, we'll come on to what the money is actually going to do in a moment. We know that Rishi Sunak delivered this plan to the cabinet this week, and there were some ministers who dissented. I think the International Trade Secretary Liz Truss and the Cabinet Office Minister Lord David Frost were another. But my understanding is that they all asked, was there an alternative way to raise these kind of sums, you know, through other kind of tax rises? And the answer was no. So this 1.25% increase in national insurance was the only way to get this kind of money. And there doesn't seem to be much dispute that this money is going to be needed. There's not a lot of dispute that the money is needed in some form or other, but it's obviously complete nonsense to say there is no other way you could raise the money. You could raise it easily through income tax, which is the tax that raises most money in the UK. You could raise it through VAT if you wanted to equally. There's another very large tax. It's it's correct to say that you can't just load money onto some of the smaller taxes, for example, capital gains tax, because that wouldn't get you the £12 billion or so necessary to fund the health and social care package. But, you know, we do need the money because the public finances, however you look at them, in an ageing society needs more money if you create new rights. And so the important thing about the social care package is that the government is now saying it will share more of the costs with individuals for social care because it recognises it's unfair 
if you haven't got a lot of assets to pay all the costs yourself. And if you've got more assets, it's unfair if you are unlucky enough to have very expensive social care needs, for example, dementia. The way to solve the public finances, they feel, is not to make people who are unlucky in the last few years of their lives pay much more than those who have a luckier death. But George, I think what we need to question about this policy is the fact that Boris Johnson was trying to do two things there. He's talking about the strain put on the NHS by the coronavirus pandemic. And we know that the health secretary, Sajid Javid, is really worried about waiting lists. And there's been apocalyptic predictions of a 13 million strong waiting list, in fact, by the next election. Obviously, the Tories don't want that. So they're bringing this NI rise in April with the money initially going to that. Then at some point, it will then transfer over to social care. But is that ever actually going? to happen because when is the NHS going to give up that money and can you imagine the headlines in a couple of years time of the NHS saying oh we're going to have to sack doctors close hospitals because this money is going to be taken away isn't what's more likely the fact is that that money will remain with the NHS and then taxes will have to go up again to pay for the social care. I think that's exactly the the danger and that's the uh, thing that the Treasury is most worried about now Sajid Javid the health secretary has given it's undertaking to Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, that this won't happen, that the money will eventually be released from the National Health Service and will start to move across to the social care system as the costs of funding the cap start to come through the system. But as you say, Seb, you know, if we're talking about increasing the capacity of the NHS by 10% over the next three years, does anybody really think with the ageing population that Chris has just mentioned that the NHS is going to give up some of that 10% increased capacity and hand it over to the social care system. I mean, just going back one step, I think it's important to say that the, what's driving this policy is the NHS. You know, the NHS is always the most exposed flank for the Conservative Party at a general election. And the idea that you go into an election with waiting lists sort of 10, 12, 13 million people would be an absolute disaster. So I think all the other decisions that have flowed from that, including the decision to put up taxes, and that's the, uh, that's the thing that Tory MPs have to bite the bullet on. What do you make about the intergenerational arguments about this, Chris? Because you've been calling some of the tax rates now and the, the overall tax burden is going to be hitting a 70 year high by this. And, you know, that might matter for economics nerds like you. But in reality, what is that going to mean for people who are working, but also for students who have got big student loans? I think there's two things that are really important intergenerationally. One is that some people say, oh, this just protects the wealthy kids of wealthy families. And that's really because of the cap on social care. And that's really not what it's doing. So I I don't think there's a great case there because what it's really doing is ensuring that someone, a family of any sort of wealth who suddenly has very, very large social care costs because of dementia in old age, for example, isn't penalised, that we don't try and save the public finances by uh, the, the, the luck of what you happen to die of uh, in this country. But where where the point is massively more pertinent, I think, Seb, as you were suggesting, is what's happening to tax rates on perfectly ordinary incomes for large groups of society at different age rates. And if you just look at graduates who have to pay once their income is above about £27,000. So we're talking, you know, early stage teachers, marketing executives, these sorts of people, nothing, we're not talking bankers or anything like that. They're not higher rate taxpayers. They will find that after these new national insurance increases, if their employer gives them, let's say, a £1,000 pay increase that costs the employer £1,000 more, they will only see £500 of it. So the, the tax rate on on pay now 
for a graduate, our basic rate tax paying graduate is 50%. You know, we like to set, talk about our headline income tax rates of 20%, but the reality for very large numbers of people is it's much, much higher than that. And it's very high internationally for those sorts of people. It's not that the UK is any more low in those circumstances. It might be low if you're a basic rate paying taxpayer who's not a graduate, not paying back a student loan. But if you are, you're very much in the same sort of bracket of what the tax wedge is between what employers pay and what you receive as someone in Denmark or Germany or even France. Now, George, obviously, politically, the Conservatives think they can get away with this. And they actually appear to have this week. It's kind of remarkable when we've looked at how chaotic Boris Johnson's government have been, when there's been other policy announcements, they've been botched or they've been U-turned. And in fact, Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's former chief advisor, predicted that it was going to be a disaster. And I think we'd both agree it's been anything but that they rode the pitch pretty well on this. We knew what was coming quite far in advance. There were obviously some dissent within Cabinet, but obviously nobody resigned and none of that's been made public. And then when it came to the House of Commons debate and the vote on these these tax rises to pay for the NHS and social care. There were only five Conservative MPs who voted against on basically their people who love small Satan and just opposed to the whole concept of the state doing this. Some more abstentions, but generally the cabinet ministers and Downing Street and the people I've spoken to this week, they're delighted at how easily this has gone down, considering the fact it is just a big old tax rise, the kind of thing that the Labour Party would normally do. Yes, I mean, they've had all summer to think about it and to prepare it. And you could tell that I mean, it was well executed. We had the threat of a reshuffle hanging around to try to maintain discipline. The policy was tweaked a bit at the last minute to bring in, for example, older people who are still working after the state pension age. Dividend taxes were increased. Some people hadn't been expecting that. The means test was a bit more generous. So there was a lot of there were a lot of tweaks in the end to try and make it more palatable. And in the end, so you and I were sitting there in the chamber, you could feel the dynamics you know, very strongly in favour of Boris Johnson's policy. Tory MPs cheering for more, Keir Starmer looking disorientated by the whole thing, not knowing how to reply. And that sort of led to a sort of very buoyant mood in the Conservative Party by the time they got to meet Boris Johnson for a 1922 committee meeting on the Wednesday night. However, what I would say about all that is that the polling, I think, initially was encouraging for the Tories. They it looked like the public were, in theory at least, in favour of increased taxes to pay for the NHS and social care. But as the week wore on, the polls started to look a little less favourable. And by the time we got to Friday, there was a poll in the Times, a YouGov poll, which showed the Tories behind Labour for the first time since January. And with six in 10 voters saying that they thought the Tories no longer cared about keeping taxes low. Now, that's something the Tories can ride through at the moment. You have to take tough decisions in midterm of parliaments, of course, and that's what you'd expect Boris Johnson to do. He gets credit for taking those tough decisions. But the big danger, I think, for the Tory party, which is deeply uncomfortable with this approach, is if we get to two years down the line, closer to the election, people start to feel the pain in their pay packets from these tax rises, and the NHS waiting lists haven't come down significantly, and social care hasn't improved significantly, then I think there's a heavy political penalty to be paid by the Prime Minister. And I think that's why this money is going straight to the NHS now, because the, the people in the government I've spoken to this week, their worst nightmare is that waiting lists are in a really bad situation. In fact, all public services could be in a bad situation at the end of 2023, which is when obviously it will be fully past the pandemic, hopefully by that point. And the economy, we'll see where that is. And of course, you're running into the next election. Chris, 
The other reason that Johnson seems to have, quote, got away with this is because of Labour, is because Keir Starmer stood up and said that they supported extra money for the NHS, but they didn't support this plan. They voted against the measure, but haven't offered their own alternative. And this is a classic problem of being in opposition, because obviously Sir Keir could put forward a different plan now, and it would be totally irrelevant by the next election. Yet he got battered all over by Johnson in the Commons, who essentially said, you know, they've got no plan. And the fact Labour voted against it, which I thought was curious, I thought they might abstain in that vote, but the fact they voted against it means the Tories can now say, for until the next election, Labour voted against giving the NHS more money. They can, I think, but opposition's always in this position, and this is always the fate of oppositions. I think this won't be the thing that determines the election. The thing that will determine the election, as George says, is do people see that the money has made a big difference both in the NHS, in healthcare, and also in social care. That's one really big question. They will certainly feel it in their pay packets come late 2023 or 2024. And then the other question, which is maybe more hopeful for the Conservatives, I think, is that there are some quite big questions on the public finances generally that they've essentially squirreled away quite a lot of money. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the public finances don't look considerably better, not in this this year, that's for certain they're going to look a lot better this year, but in three, four, five years' time in the October budget, because it's quite likely that we will, as a nation, assume that we're not going to have such a big permanent hit from coronavirus in the economy as we have been assuming hitherto. And if that's the case, then we've got more money just generally, and I'm sure that will be spent in the years running up to the election. And that's obviously, I think, the thing that Rishi Sunak is banking on, George, is that obviously in the last spending review, I think there were £14 billion of cuts to -to day-to-day spending Whitehall departments that had not been assigned yet. And there's been a sharp intake of breadth of that. And if Chris is right, I think he wrote in a recent column, and there's a bit more room for fiscal manoeuvre, then that will help them, you know, put extra money into those public services in those tricky points. And I think, you know, Conservative MPs will probably go along with that too. Yes, I mean, the other public services have, have been squeezed, as you know, since 2010 with austerity and, you know, sort of outside the key departments from a political point of view, particularly the health service, there's been a big, big squeeze. And really, the pips are starting to squeak when it comes to, you know, the courts backlog or schools backlogs uh, or transport as well, the need for tra- transport subsidies to go in as well. So, yes, I mean, the fact that the Chancellor may have a bit more money to throw around on October the 27th at the time of his budget will really help. But I think, you know, Conservative MPs are prepared to accept for now the fact that fiscal conservatism has trumped low tax conservatism in the sense that they've accepted the case that tax taxes will need to go up to pay for permanent new burdens on the state. But they haven't lost their enthusiasm for low taxes. And I think if British Sunak can find a way to at least make some symbolic tax cuts as we go into the 2024 election, or that's when we expect it to be, then I think that will help to reassure a lot of conservative MPs that the government hasn't completely lost its way. And then just finally, Chris, when you look at the sort of overall intellectual view of this, it is really quite a big break when you think about it. And I think George framed it very nicely there, because first of all, this is the first time Boris Johnson is spending more money while paying for it, because during the coronavirus pandemic and the furlough schemes, the bounce back loans, the uplift to universal credit, that was all just piled on the public debt pile. Whereas it is, I think you wrote and we've discussed before, the Treasury was very clear with social care reform, this was going to have to be costed. So do you see 
obviously this is a moment now where fiscal responsibility has come back and Boris Johnson has accepted that or in the future is he just going to spend more and borrow more? Oh no, he's. I mean, he he's essentially caved completely to the treasury. The t- tra- traditional treasury view triumphed in this statement this week. So what what's basically happened is that even though there is no particular need not to borrow in the short term, there's a need not to borrow too much in the medium term. But we're still recovering from the pandemic, and there's no particular crisis in the public finances right now. You could have borrowed in the short term to fund all of this, all the catch-up spending. But the price of getting of Boris Johnson paid for getting his social care reforms through was clearly that he had to raise the taxes or agree to the taxes being raised immediately. And that is a remarkable victory for Treasury fiscal conservatism, something the Treasury officials will be very pleased they got through and was frankly not necessary to do right away. So I think shows where the power lies. You know, we thought when Rishi Sunak became Chancellor and there was going to be a merger of all the political advisors between number 10 and number 11, this was number 10 taking control. In the end, it's number 11 that's got all the levers of power. Britain appears to have almost forgotten about coronavirus. Life feels as if it's almost returned to normal, despite the fact the pandemic isn't over. Infections are running at almost 40,000 a day, and hospital admissions every day are reaching almost 1,000. So the big question on everyone's lips in Whitehall is, can we avoid another lockdown this winter? Boris Johnson is expected to set out a toolbox of measures next week to avoid shutting down the country again. But will they work? Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London has said there is much the government can do to avoid another disastrous lockdown. And I think you can also reduce risk in mass gatherings and nightclubs, for instance, with lateral protests, with other measures. These things are subtle judgments and really not scientific judgments. They're really, I mean, political judgments. Sarah Neville, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Everett. Hope you've had a good summer break away and hopefully not thinking about coronavirus. But that's the weird situation we find ourselves in, that with everything opened up again, with masks no longer compulsory, social distancing has come to an end. It really feels like we are past the pandemic, but we are not when you look at the data. So where do you think things are heading in the next weeks and months as we get into the tricky winter period? Well, I think we're at a really pivotal moment. And the next two weeks will tell us a lot about how the winter is going to look, because we had data from the ONS on Friday, which showed that over the summer, infection levels were basically level. I mean, as you rightly say, Seb, at a very high level, but broadly level. But in the last few days, they've begun to rise very significantly, coinciding with the return to school. Now, what I think we will learn within the next two weeks is whether that rise in back-to-school cases is largely because of the return of compulsory lateral flow testing. In other words, it's simply been about identifying cases which during the school holidays went unidentified, or whether there has been a genuine upsurge in community spread which could prove very threatening much beyond the classroom and the playground and uh, spread out into parents and grandparents. Um, Yeah, we'll know a lot more in a couple of weeks. 
Well, Oliver Barnes, it's wonderful to have you on Payne's Politics. Thank you for joining us for the first time. Where are we at with the vaccination programme at the moment? Because the message that Mr Johnson and the Health Secretary Shanti Javid have always said is that the vaccines are a game changer. That means we won't need to go back into another lockdown. But of course, we've had the Delta variant. Where are we at at the moment? What are our national levels of immunity looking like? At the moment, we've got about 90% of over 16s across the UK with a first dose and around 80% with a second dose. And obviously, that is a very high number. But the big question for the vaccination programme at the moment is whether that immunity, much of which was given to people back in, you know, January, February, March, earlier in the year, whether that lasts and whether it can last through the summer. So the big question is, elderly people who were immunized earlier in the year, are they still uh, in a position where they're protected against infection, but most importantly, severe disease and death? And that's why we've seen a lot of uh, focus this week on uh, the booster program and whether that immunity that we have already needs uh, an uplift. Now, of course, we're also still waiting for some crucial questions coming from the government about this, Olive. First of all, there is vaccinating teenagers here and many countries around the world have been vaccinating all those over 12. And over the summer, the JCVI, they're the independent committee that rules who and whom cannot be vaccinated. They basically passed this question on to the UK's four chief medical officers. They have not ruled on vaccinating teenagers, but we're expecting to hear next week from England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, that over 12s will be vaccinated and that will start pretty soon. What's the controversy about there? And do you agree with that's what's going to happen? Well, the JCVI basically said that the decision was too marginal for them to make it. They dwell particularly on the risk-benefit analysis for the individual, i.e. if I'm a 12-year-old, do I face more risks from the vaccine or more risk from getting coronavirus and getting severely ill? And they said that was too marginal for them to make that decision and handed it on to the CMOs to think about the broader benefits of vaccinating children, i.e. preventing disruption in schools. Now, there's some suggestions from people I've uh, been speaking to that this could be a kind of a bit of a stitch up in a way. There's been a great deal of political pressure to get teen vaccines through. And we're all kind of expecting the CMOs to rule in favour of them. And of course, the great benefit for the government would be that it might halt some of that transmission in schools, some outbreaks, some school closures, and of course, the bad headlines that come with that. Now, Sarah, the other question, of course, is going to be the booster programme. And you and I have been writing about that this week because there's been some studies done that show that immunity is beginning to decline for those who had their first two doses of the corona vaccine, some cases more than six months ago. And we're expecting the JCVI is going to give the green light to a booster programme, at least for those who are the most vulnerable, the over 70s and the immunosuppressant. And we also think as well, this could be the first time that through the booster programme, the UK will mitigate mix and match jabs that so those who say had AstraZeneca for their one and two jabs will get an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of mixing and matching is that vaccinologists will tell you that invariably giving somebody a different second or third dose of a vaccine different to the first one they had produces a stronger immune response. So it would be very surprising indeed if the same didn't apply to the COVID-19 vaccines. I think the question around when to give these boosters and how large a group of people they should be given to 
is still really puzzling scientists. It was interesting to hear Sarah Gilbert, the progenitor of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, in the Telegraph on Friday, saying that she doesn't believe that it's necessary to give widespread boosters. She She's confident of the way in which immunity actually is holding up in certainly her own vaccine. So I think that we are most likely to see a booster program for the over 70s and, and the immunosuppressed, as you rightly say, Seb, the categories one to four in the original vaccination program. But I'm a lot less certain that we will see a widespread program even for the 50 to 70s, let alone the 18 to 50s. Now, Oliver, let's look at some of the other weapons in this toolbox Boris Johnson is going to discuss. So we've got the booster campaign, which I think we all agree is going to happen in some form in the near future. We've got vaccinating teenagers. The next thing is going to be vaccine passports. And there's a huge political debate about this because conservatives are very opposed to them on principle. But the government has said they will come in by the end of September. And the idea is to go to big music festivals or intimate settings such as nightclubs, you will have to show proof of vaccination status. And the thing that we don't know is, is it going to be you have to be vaccinated or you have to be vaccinated or have a rigorous testing regime? Is there much evidence or proof out there that these do help reduce infections? Or is it more about a carrot approach as we've seen in France to get people to get vaccinated? Well, as you say, France has adopted them and welcomed them wholeheartedly. And of course, the the logic behind it there was that they had slowing vaccine uptake much lower than we had. And they implemented them to see more interest and more enthusiasm towards taking vaccines, particularly amongst young people. And it's been a huge success for them. Of course, that's not quite what we're dealing with here. We've got a large vaccine coverage, but we do have around 6 million adults who are unvaccinated. Of course, the government would want to tempt them to get vaccinated. But then I think part of the logic is also that a great deal of the uptick in cases, if you look at Scotland, for example, where they've had a surge recently, has been in younger groups. So obviously school-aged children, but then also people aged around 18 to 24. And the assumption is that a lot of these cases and the transmission may be taking place in kind of tightly packed hospitality venues amongst unvaccinated or single vaccinated younger people. And if you could tempt some of them to get a vaccine, you might halt some of that transmission. Of course, the point, though, is many of those young people were already infected and some of them have already been vaccinated. So how much headroom there is to exploit in the way of increasing immunity in that group is still up for debate. And Sarah, how, what's your view on the vaccine password? Because obviously, you know, I think you can appreciate it's, it's not in the British character generally to be carrying cards or show your papers. But the, the ideological debate that Boris Johnson's really had with himself, according to people I've spoken to this week, is what makes us more free, having ID cards or being locked down? And if you have to put it off against those two, you can see why people will eventually be run round by it, even though it's obviously expensive and puts a lot of burden on businesses. Yes, I must admit, over the summer, I was wholeheartedly in favour of it. But that was purely because I thought, you know, as Ollie says, that it would operate as it has in France and it would encourage the, the significant number of young people who still haven't been vaccinated to get a vaccine. But I think, you know, again, as Ollie mentions, immunity is now so widespread in that group just because they've been having 
a great summer, as young people, of course, do. They've been going to large music festivals. There was an entire massive boardmasters spike that was really visible in the the, the southwest uh, data uh, during August. So I think the argument that, that it will significantly serve as a spur to boost population immunity is very dubious epidemiologically. And politically, it's perhaps very hard to suddenly tell young people, we've been quite happy for you to go into nightclubs without a proof of vaccination, you know, the last few months, uh, ever since they reopened. And we're now going to suddenly tell you at the end of September that you have to stop. I think that's uh, probably not the way for this government to connect with young people who are already feeling quite sore about uh, having to uh, pay a lot more for their elders' social care this week. Yeah, I think there's a point here about vaccine passports, about booster jabs and about teen vaccines that kind of ties them all together, which is that they are all effectively proactive measures. They're the kind of last things in the government's toolkit to get ahead of the pandemic, as opposed to reintroducing any type of restrictions. And that's why I think the government is naturally lurching towards all three of them, because the idea of rowing back the easements is so kind of unpleasant to people that you know, they're grasping and clutching at those levers that they still have left to do something about spread before we we head into winter. And finally, Sarah, what's your instinct on how this is going to look? Because obviously we've now got over 8,000 people in hospital due to COVID, which I think is obviously a significant number. You know, if that goes up more, it obviously gets problematic. And I guess the thing we don't know is what is the problematic level? We know from earlier in the year when we had exponential growth, that was problematic. But at which point does this toolbox run empty and have to look at more drastic things? I think it's going to be really interesting, you know, as I say, when the back to school surge dies down, I think we'll have a much clearer sense of whether what we're left with is endemicity. And if we are, at just how high a level is that? And what does that level in turn mean for the NHS? At the moment, hospitalisations are continuing to rise, not massively steeply, but they are now, I think, at the highest level since March. But quite separate from the COVID burdens, the NHS is just under the most extraordinary pressure at the moment. I think the difficulty in getting a GP appointment has has sort of rarely been more acute. And this, of course, is nothing to do with COVID or very little to do with COVID. It's mostly to do with people coming back into the health service, people who put off seeking help through all the period of lockdown and even you know, after lockdown, when restrictions continued, I think a lot of people were still quite nervous about seeking health care. But now they're doing it and thinking about then adding into the mix potentially a serious flu season, you do get to extremely worrying levels. I think, you know, the government will bend over backwards to avoid any further lockdown. There's obviously an awful lot they can do short of a lockdown. They could, I suppose, sort of retreat back to level three. They could certainly renew the compulsory uh, mask mandates in, in shops and on public transport. So there's, there's, there's a lot they can do short of shutting down society again. But it is going to be a very problematic approach to winter, I think. And just briefly, Oliver, what's your view on this? Do you, how bad do you think it is going to get? And do you think we can get through up this winter and into the better climes of spring without a lockdown? I think the first choice that's going to face the government 
is turning off parts of the healthcare system or turning off parts of the economy. And I think we can all guess which one they're going to opt for first. They're going to shut down some elective surgery and some non-urgent appointments. Then if things get a kind of bit more squiffy later in the year, and there is a high number of people in hospital at the moment, as we head towards winter, it's it's 8,000 people in hospital at the moment, which is 10 times higher than what it was last September. If things start to get more precarious later in the winter, I think there is a possibility that some restrictions will be reintroduced. The one optimistic note, if that were to happen, though, is that if we look at the R rate, the reproduction value of the virus and and what its potential to spread is, it hasn't gone much above 1.5 in Scotland, and it's basically been around one in England. And what that suggests is, as Sarah mentioned, you can bring in more light touch measures potentially to get R below one again and reverse anything if, it, if, if the outbreak does get out of control over winter. With Sarah and Oliver, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. And if you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. You can find it through all your usual channels, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Positive reviews and nice ratings are always welcome. Paint Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.